Greetings, and thanks for joining me again on Broken Boxes Podcast. In this episode, we feature a timely and pointed conversation with sister friend, water protector, artist, and current law school student, Amber Morningstar Byers. The topics we discuss in this episode range from healing ancestral trauma, survival, the Resist Line 3 camps, land back initiatives for indigenous peoples, tribal law, art, wellness, mental health, and self-care, all of which need continued attention as we work towards a healthy relationship to our planet. Amber Morningstar Byers is an enrolled member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma and a descendant of the Chickasaw Nation. Amber has a BA in Indigenous Liberal Studies and an AFA in Studio Art from the Institute of American Indian Arts. She will graduate from the University of Arizona College of Law in 2022. Now, in the middle of this conversation, we shared an audio reading of an article Amber wrote about her reflections from the Line 3 pipeline resistance at Red Lake River in northern Minnesota while she was on the front lines this year. The article titled I Am the River was first published via allcreation.org as part of their Fall Equinox collection, Sacred Relationship. At the end of my conversation with Amber, we hear the song Silting Clay by singer-songwriter Adam Horowitz. Also in the show notes, there's tons of resource that Amber and I talk about at the end of the podcast. So if you want to learn any more about the Line 3 resistance, about well-being, spiritual and mental health, and also like leadership resource, just check the show notes. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you, Amber, for being here with me today on Broken Boxes. And um, I just want to say really quickly to my audience and to you that I appreciate you and your friendship over the years. And I just look forward to sharing your voice and vision out with my listening audience and to watch you just grow into a fierce presence in the world. So thank you for being here. Mm, thank you, Ginger. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, thank you as well for your friendship and sisterhood over the years. You've been a huge support to me and to my family and to uh, just our community in general who have really um, uplifted me and supported me on all my crazy endeavors and, and uh, you know, on my, my journey throughout my life. So thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate you. Mm. Well, I want to get started just by some basic like introductions. If you want to let my audience know what your name is, who you are, what your work is about, and um, how you walk in the world. Mm. Well, um, Alitopa Chihoke, Chimachukma Makana, Saw Chofoyu Amber, Anna Henley Fitchick Byers, Asia Chata. My name is Amber Morningstar Byers. I am an enrolled member of the uh, Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, and I am a descendant of the Chickasaw Nation. Um, I am an artist, an advocate, um, a singer. Um, a storyteller, and uh, most recently, I'm a law student. I'm currently studying federal Indian law in tandem with business law at the University of Arizona in uh, in Tucson. So that's that's me. Mm. 
And I kind of want to dip into like what brought you to that moment. Like where was young Amber and how did you make your way into being a law student? Is there any is there any stories that you want to tell that kind of can tie in you coming to this place of where you are now? Yes. Uh, my <laughs> my journey <laughs> to law school has been long and winding and jagged and rugged boy uh yeah i i was not one of these uh you know sort of um straight line straight arrow you know from elementary middle school high school college grad school types um i i actually dropped out of high school at 16 uh, and young Amber uh, was in a bad way for a long time. She, mm. yeah, she had um, a lot of experiences that, um, you know, were hard and challenging. I am very open about the fact that I am a recovering addict. I was a cocaine addict for about eight years of my life. I spent probably about 15 years of my life drunk. I was in the service industry for many years. I was a bartender and a server uh, and, you know, that's was part of the incentive for me to drop out when I was 16 was that I was I watched my mom, you know, really struggle to put food on the table. And, you know, sometimes she couldn't keep the lights on. And, you know, we were really struggling financially um, when I was growing up. So at 16, I dropped out because I well, first of all, I didn't like institutional education. I still don't. But I hated school. I was in trouble all the time, getting in fights, doing drugs you know, drinking, hanging out with bad boys, you know, and so I just really, I just couldn't exist in that space at that time. And so I dropped out and I started waitressing, uh, you know, serving waiting tables. And at 18, I was living in New York at the time. It's eight, um, it's legal at 18 to uh, serve alcohol. So I started bartending and started making money, you know, I mean, the service industry is really hard. Uh, it's really hard work. Bless the people that do the work, you know, because it, they help keep the world going around, you know, but yeah, it, it was really hard on my, my spirit. It was really hard on my body. I was very unhappy for many years. So I just drank and I did drugs to try and run from myself and run from my trauma. I run from so many elements of myself that I couldn't look at at the time. So yeah, I dropped out, uh, was bartending for many years, traveling, and uh, my grandma passed away. My grandma passed away when I was 26. And I just realized that that my life was not headed in a good direction. You know, at the time I was actually living out of the country. I had moved to a little island in the Caribbean called St. Martin. It's a Dutch and French island. And uh, I was down there bartending, just sleeping on the beach, you know, uh, doing lots of drugs and drinking a lot. And, you know, I was really tan and really skinny and it was a lot of fun in certain moments, you know, <laughs> but um, it, it was killing me. It was killing me. That life, that way of life was killing me. And I wasn't making any art. And I've always been an artist. Both of my parents are artists. So yeah, that sort of brought me back to earth, you know, my grandma passing away, my mom's mom, her and I were very close. We had a very um, almost telepathic communication. We were, we, I, she would come to me in dreams and I would know something was wrong or, you know, I would think of her and then she would call and she would say, what's going on with you? I know something's not right. You know, we just had this very intense connection and she passed away and that brought me back to earth. And so 
my parents both said to me, you know, you should really think about school. You should go back to the Institute of American Indian Arts. And I say back, uh, even though I had never been there before, because that's where my parents met. Uh, my mom was attending the College of Santa Fe and my dad was going to IAIA, the Institute of American Indian Arts. And at the time they shared a campus, the College of Santa Fe and IAIA. And uh, that's how my parents met. And so everyone called me a dorm baby when I eventually did go to IA. Everyone was like, hey, you're a dorm baby. Like, there's a lot of us, actually. There's a lot of dorm babies from IA. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, yeah, it's pretty funny. Kind of gross, but, you know, whatever. Um, anyways, yeah. So my parents said, you know, you need to you need to go there. It's a good school and it might help you get on a better track. And so I did. I got my GED at 27, it took me three tries. The first two tries, I sat in my car and couldn't get out. I just shook and was too scared to to get out of the, the car to go inside and, and take the test. But on the third try, I finally did it and I went in and I passed and everything was fine. And then I went to, I enrolled in IAIA and that place saved my life. It really, really did. Uh, a man named Steve Wall. He, um, Stephen Wall, he's the, he was the chair of the Indigenous Liberal Studies Department there. Um, and, and, you know, among others, like I, I mentioned Steve specifically by name, but there's so many more. Linda Loma Haftua, um, Porter Swensel, uh, James Stevens, um, Jim Rivera, man, Jim Rivera, you know, there are so many professors there, teachers that, um, Brian Fleetwood, you know, that really they, they saw my potential and they saw my art and they were like, get in here, you know, and they just really ushered me in with open arms. And a lot of them had known my, my dad and my parents, some of them had even gone to school with them, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I found a family there. I found a home. I started slowly to sober up, you know, and I started, I stopped doing drugs and, and yeah, that, that place really saved my life. I don't know what kind of path I would be on right now if it weren't for, for that school and that program. Mm. And so art, how did you get from art into law school? Where's that jump? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's actually a a very specific moment and I was having a conversation and he and this guy probably has no idea that this happened I'll have to see him one of these days and tell him about it but <laughs> my name Adrian Wall which I'm sure many people know who Adrian is and Steve's uh Steve's son actually I remember talking to Adrian when he graduated from IA I think it was at graduation actually and I was like hey man you know congratulations you graduated yay you know what are you gonna do now and he was like I don't know, make more art, <laughs> like the same <laughs> shit I've been doing, you know, which is no, you know, I don't mean to like say anything I, that I don't mean to mean that in like a, a bad way. But I think what Adrian was saying is that he, you know, he was already a successful artist at that point. He was mm. already making music and selling art and doing shows and in galleries and all this, you know. And so when he graduated, it was sort of just like, yeah, more the same, you know, like I'm still an artist. Mm. And I remember thinking like, that's what's going to happen when I graduate is I'm just going to make more art, you know? And I realized that that really didn't feel like enough to me because I've always been an artist. I've always been making art, you know? And so it's like, I was getting this degree in studio art that I was like, well, what am I going to really do with this degree? You know? And so 
I started thinking about it and I went to um, my counselor and I said, a woman named Diane Reyna, love Diane. And she said to me, well, maybe you need to be a little bit more challenged. Maybe you need some more intellectual stimulation. So let's get you into some ILS programs. ILS stands for Indigenous Liberal Studies, which is a whole department at the Institute of American Indian Arts. And shout out to them. They don't get enough credit. ILS does not get enough credit. IA, IA births all of these incredible artists and pumps them out, hmm. you know, one after the other. And that, that's what IA is known for, right? It's known for its famous artists or its famous native artists. But what mm -hmm. it's not known for and what it should also be known for is the intellectuals that have gone on and done incredible things. Ali Moran, who ran for Senate in South Dakota, you know, Travis Miller, who is now chief judge of his tribe, you know, Julia Wall, who is now doing incredible community doula work. Myself, I'm going to law school, you know? So the ILS department, man, they don't get enough credit. And I let it be known on the record <laughs> that IAI is not just an art school. It is, it is a program, it is a, a school with programs that are very diverse. There's a film program there. There's creative writing. There's, you know, there's cinematic arts. There's performing arts. Like it's not just a school to go learn how to paint at. You know, mm. there's, there's a, a huge variety of of benefits to be had there. So, um, anyways, yeah, I I was talking to Adrian. I realized that I needed more stimulation. I went to my counselor. She got me into the ILS program. I started taking classes with Porter Swensel and Steve Wall. And man, the content just blew my mind. It blew my mind. Tribal, the classes in that program are, you know, tribal government, uh, indigenous economics, indigenous philosophy, reading a shit ton of Vine Deloria, you know, Winona LaDuke, John Trudell, all of these, these um, indigenous intellectuals who have changed the world with their words, you know, and their, their thoughts. And um yeah, it just blew my mind. I, I had known all of these things. I knew, you know, I knew the history of our people. I knew the history of the country, but I had no idea what it looked like through the lens of these, these incredible native academics. And so that's when I, that's when I was like, okay, I have a, a future in academia for sure. Um, because I like to think about this stuff too. It's weird, you know, it's crazy. It's sad, it's disturbing, it's traumatic, but it's, it's real. It's the history of this country. Anyways, Steve Steve had um, also gone to law school. Uh, he was the chief judge of his tribe, Mescalero Apache, for 15 years, I think. And so one day, you know, Steve started planting those seeds in my ear. Hey, think about going to law school, you know? And I was like, what? Get out of here, Steve. I'm a fucking dropout. I'm an ex drug addict, you know, been arrested a million times, been like in all sorts of trouble. What law school would possibly want me? But he encouraged me. He encouraged me and he, he convinced me, you know, um, a couple other people in the community, Rodina Cave Parnell from the American Indian Law Center, you know, my parents, bless my parents for believing in me and and my, my community, you know, my friends, everyone just said, do it, do it, try, you know, what's, what's the worst that happens? You don't get in. Okay. Well, you do something else, you know? So I did, I applied mm -hmm. and I got into every law school um, that I applied to except for one. Wow. That's yeah. badass, Amber. <laughs> I didn't yeah. know that. Crazy. Yeah. I ended up getting a full ride scholarship to university of Arizona and 
<laughs> I mean, it's still, it makes me a little misty thinking about it, you know, because it's like my whole life, I just thought that I wasn't worth anything. You know, my whole life, I thought I was just a lost little native girl that was, you know, too damaged and too drunk and, you know, too messy, too insecure to do anything great in this life. And, um, getting accepted to law school and getting that incredible scholarship sort of, it felt like, I don't know, creator, or, you know, the ancestors, whoever you believe in, you know, it was sort of like them just showing me very clearly in my face, look, you know, you are worthy. Look, you can do big things, you know, just keep going and, and, you know, stay on a good path. So mm. yeah, that's, that's how I ended up in law school. <laughs> It's amazing how like one or two like little moments in your life of somebody like enacting kindness or just like seeing you and witnessing you can really like shift the trajectory of your whole experience and like help you to believe in yourself and push yourself forward. And that's just really beautiful that the the path there wasn't some like big moment. It was just all these small moments of people's kindness in your community showing you the brilliance that already existed within you or reminding you of it. That's really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. It is, it is random acts of kindness and compassion and encouragement. You know, that's what it is, is seeing someone's beauty and saying, Hey, do you see this? Do you mm -hmm. see it? Cause I see it, you know? And yeah, it's, it is, it's a testament to you never know when you can completely change someone's life which just yeah. you know so yeah. yeah and where are you in law school where <laughs> you're in it <laughs> we, I'm we don't see you that much yeah <laughs> I'm almost out actually it's crazy I uh I'm in my third year so that's the last year um they call us three L's uh law school is three years one L two L and three L 1L was really, really hard for me. Uh, I had a lot of loss in my life. A couple of my elders passed away. I ended a relationship and it was really, really difficult. But I, you know, and also the first year of law school is the hardest, they say, because you just have no idea what you're doing and you're ass deep in homework all the time and you can just drowning and, and it sucks. It's horrible. But I made it through that. I drudged through it again with a lot of help from my community people telling me, don't quit. You can do this. Keep going, you know, making me food, calling me to check in, sending me care packages. Like, man, my community just freaking carried me through that first year. And then second year was, was also really hard, but in a different way, I took on a lot of leadership positions. I was the president of the Native American Law Students Association at the University of Arizona, which um, I think it's the second largest chap chapter in the country. So it was a huge responsibility and it's very stressful, but it was a beautiful experience, um, but it was hard. And then, yeah, now I'm in my third year and I'm not doing jack shit. I'm actually just, I kicked my feet up this year. I, I haven't taken <laughs> on any leadership responsibilities. <laughs> I'm solely focusing on my schoolwork and my, my health and my community. I'm working out and running a lot and eating and sleeping and, and really trying to, to just take care of myself this year because um, I will graduate in May. 
Um, mm -hmm. We are October right now. No, still September. But yeah, I'll graduate next year in the spring and then the bar exam. The bar exam is like the final boss of law school and uh, it's useless and it's complete caca. And I really hope that they abolish it at some point. But alas, I have to take it right now. So, um, or when I graduate and yeah, that'll be next year. And that'll be a really difficult challenge. Another, the last big hurdle to, uh, overcome and yeah, but yeah, I'm almost done. You know, I'm, I'm doing it. I've done it. I have just a little bit more to go and I will have completed the hardest intellectual and academic challenge of my whole life. So incredible and you are focusing on indigenous law tribal law right is that kind of like your main focus if i remember correctly mm, kind of sort of yes and no um i because i have this this incredible education from i i and and another another plug for i i want to just quickly put in here is that you know when i first went to law school i met all my colleagues all my classmates and everyone was like, you know, I'm like, well, where did you go to school? And they're like, oh, Dartmouth or, you know, UC Davis or UC Berkeley or, you know, all of these like big schools, you know, these huge, big accredited, like prestigious universities. And they're all like, well, where did you go to school? And I'm like, the Institute of American Indian Arts. <laughs> What's that? And a lot of them hadn't, even the native students hadn't even heard of it, you know? So I went in feeling very insecure about my undergrad education. I felt very like I wasn't good enough. I just went to this tiny tribal college, which for anyone listening, if you don't know what a tribal college, a TCU tribal college or university is, I highly recommend you look them up. And I think there's 30 something, 32, 37, I don't remember. But anyways, there's quite a few um, around the nation and they're located either on reservations or near uh, Indian communities. And yeah, they really, they're, they're incredible because it's indigenous people teaching indigenous people and they've indigenized the curriculum. So it's really, really important because, you know, especially history with the boarding schools, residential schools, like native people have a lot of trauma in school settings, institutional settings. And so Tribal colleges sort of negate a lot of that uh, trauma and, and awkwardness of going to school because you're going to school with Indian people, you're learning from Indian people, you're in Indian communities, you know? So it's, to me, it was the best way to, to go to school. And I flourished there, obviously, like I just said, you know? But uh, anyways, so I, you know, was feeling really insecure about my education coming from a tribal college and going into this huge top 50 law school and it turns out that the education I got at IA, it blew everyone out of the water. Wow. Um, that's there awesome. There were so many, yeah, there were so many readings uh, that they wanted us to do for the Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program. You know, readings from, again, all those Indigenous academics and, and philosophers and, and intellectuals that I named earlier. And I would literally tell my, I would email my professor and say, I've already done this. I've already read this book in undergrad, you know, and they were all like, wow, okay, cool. Well, you don't have to do the readings, you know? So it was, it was, it was crazy. It was crazy to like have this advanced leg up in the indigenous people's law and policy program at a top 50 law school, having done already so much of the curriculum in undergrad at tribal college. So 
So shout out again, the IA, Steve Wall, Porter Swinsel, the ILS department, man, they, they prepared me way better than they, than they thought, you know, way more than they thought. Um, yeah, that sounds like it. And so, so what is your, what are you dreaming of for your practice? Like once you do graduate, like, where are you going to take it? Well, I don't really know. Um, so I'm hoping to, and it depends on, on how many credit hours I can stuff into my schedule next semester. I'm hoping to graduate with certificates in both Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy and Business Law. I'm not sure if I'll end up with one or the other because of credit hour specifications, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I'm hoping to get certificates in both, which will mean that I sort of have specialized in that area of law and it'll help me get jobs in those areas of law. I really like business law and I really like, well, let me rephrase that. <laughs> I'm, I don't like business law. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm really fascinated. I'm very fascinated by, by business law. I'm fascinated by property law. It's some real white people shit. I'm not going to lie. Like business law is like, it is literally learning a new language. The language of mergers and acquisitions, the language of federal income tax. I would love, maybe we can put a sample of my homework up with this podcast <laughs> and everyone can go and read a page from my mergers and acquisitions textbook just to see the kind of caca that I have to read and process and understand. It's insanity. It's really, it's, it's so, so difficult, but I'm doing it. And I actually am fascinated by it because it's challenging mm -hmm. because it's, it's something that I've never been exposed to five years ago. Even if you had told me I would be reading mergers and acquisitions and be able to understand it, I, I, I probably would have punched you in the face, <laughs> you know, don't make fun of me. <laughs> don't, don't placate me yeah it does help i mean there's like this whole movement for land back that's happening mm -hmm. through our community of indigenous people and accomplices where everybody's having this rally cry and i just want to name that as far as i understand it that cr that cry for land back began by actual people on the front line up in canada queer people and women indigenous queer community members and women. So I always want to try to name them as who kind of birthed this movement out of actual direct action. Mm -hmm. And now it's kind of become like this rally cry that is getting shifted into all these different places and all, all these different ways. And I think that the work you're doing, this like really like white speak, nitty gritty acquisitions kind of property law, is actually what's needed to understand what land back could actually mean. Can you talk about how you're associating those two things? Yes. Uh, and land back is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, not only because uh, I believe in it and because I'm part of it, but because I am understanding it from a different lens than a lot of other Native people. And it's really hard. I get really frustrated with uh, the concept of, I, I used to get really frustrated with the concept of land back because it's very multifaceted and having this white man's education really frustrated me because I was like, the system isn't set up for land back. Like we, you know, <laughs> we can't just get land back. Like, <laughs> you know, it's, there's so many hoops. There are mm. so many obstacles and challenges and 
yeah, just studying the history of property law in this country, the, the, the founding cases, you know, that originally said where, you know, the Chief Justice John Marshall literally says, you know, Indians are too savage, too uncivilized, too grasp properly grasp the concept of property law therefore they cannot own they cannot sell they cannot you know it's just that that racist ass narrative that has been you know told and and dished out to the people of this country since the dawn of it and so it's it's been really frustrating but the thing is is that as a native woman i understand land back you know i am i have been displaced from my my motherland, my homeland, you know, I'm Oklahoma Choctaw. Oklahoma is not our homeland. You know, I grew up in New Mexico. New Mexico is not my homeland. You know, I still have deep, deep connections and roots in Mississippi, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's diaspora. It's all, it's tragic. It's tragedy is what it is, you know? And so in my heart, I know and understand land back to its core, but as a law student, land back means something completely different, you know? And what it means for me really from a legal standpoint is how can tribes create mechanisms to get land back, to receive land back from not only the government, but from yes, accomplices and allies, people who want to give back. And it's difficult, you know? I, I know a lot of really good hearted people who say, yeah, you know, I, I wanna give my land back to the original peoples, but they own a fucking condo in downtown Albuquerque. It's like, no one wants that shit, man. Like, what, you want, what are we supposed to do with this, you know? So, so it's funny because you got to think about, you know, the logistics of it. You got to think about the tribes. You got to think about the lawyers involved. You got to think about the, excuse me, the costs, you know, um, we have, there's so much involved, you know, money and, and, um, I love the real rent models that are popping up all over, you know, tribes charging rent, you know, to settlers and their descendants and uh, accomplices, allies, you know, just non-native people in general who are living on ancestral uh, territories, um, both seated and unseated. And so it's, I, I really appreciate that model because it enables tribes, it gives them the agency to do what they want with the money, which is buy land back, but in the appropriate places that are either adjacent to reservations or, you know, their, their own native communities. And so, um, yeah, but there's a lot, I mean, God, we could do an entire episode on the legal uh, <laughs> barriers and challenges of land back, um, which maybe that's an idea, but yeah, um, we'll have a whole series where it's <laughs> Ginger and Amber yeah. <laughs> digging yeah. into all these various <laughs> yeah. property issues. law bullshit. <laughs> yeah. That would be dope, though, to have, like, an Indigenous law podcast. There's a couple out there, actually. I know that I know that um, some folks have started a few uh, or have, you know, conceptualized uh, doing them before. So, yeah, I think that that's Amazing. definitely needed and, and um, hopefully will be up and coming because there's so many there's so many issues, you know, mm. there's so many things to talk about. Yeah. And speaking of what inspired me or lit my fire to finally like get you on this podcast because I've been we've been talking about this for like a year now of doing this but you recently um had an article that you wrote for our all creation and it was about your time going up um to the camps at line three 
and you sent it out to a group of people who you're in community with and I was one of them and I listened to it you read the article and I'm gonna after after we talk about it a little I'll play it for my listeners but it moved me to tears just like this first person account of like like familiarity and also just like accomplishment because as an indigenous person you can also be in accomplishment with other indigenous people who are doing work that aligns with yours but it's also like a variant you know and um yeah i just wanted you to kind of like touch in on that experience that topic before i play the um the rebroadcast of the article and then we can talk a bit more about it yeah first i i, I want to go back to land back real quick because it's very pertinent to my article um I was really, I was really afraid. I was very hesitant to publish this article. It was actually just a bunch of my journal entries from camp sort of stitched together to create this article. I basically just copied and pasted a bunch of my different journal entries and, and wove, you know, wove it together. Land back, you know, yes, land back is a movement to recover ancestral homelands uh getting them back into the stewardship and the caretaking of tribes and and those those lands um the native people who originally came from those lands were born of those lands and who always took care of them but land back in my opinion is also a spiritual reconnection and awakening with the land and that's what i write about in my article but it's very vulnerable it's a very vulnerable topic i think for a lot of native people maybe even all maybe i'll go go out on a limb and say all native people because whether you're from the res or you're an urban indian or whatever your blood quantum is or your enrollment status or lack thereof we're all fucking reconnecting in some way shape or form and it really pisses me off to see a lot of um, lateral violence, lateral oppression happening, especially in social media circles, talking about, you know, shaming, reconnecting natives. We're all reconnecting natives, every single one of us, even the res Indians, even the holy people, all, we're all reconnecting. And I think land back for me personally has meant reintroducing myself to the land and finding a home in the land and I was insecure about releasing this article because there's a lot in it that I felt was going to be sort of laughed at or made fun of you know oh the fucking flute in the background or the eagle cries you know like it's so there's a lot in my article that speaks to stereotypes I think you know of like you know, belonging to the land. And, and I was like, oh no, or like, you know, are these natives going to come for me saying that I'm being too stereotypical or, you know, that I'm talking about the eagles and no one wants to hear about eagles, you know, like, <laughs> and then my singing, you know, I've, I've, um, I've just recently started to share my voice with, with folks and it's, again, very, it's a very vulnerable um, area of my life for me because I've always loved to sing and I've had a few wonderful mentors, um, Jen Kreisberg, my auntie Jen, 
you know, she's one of the first people that said, you need to sing more. I'm going to give you some songs and you're going to sing them. And I was Awesome. like, I love that. yes, Auntie. Okay. Shout out to Auntie Jen. <laughs> you know, um, and, and medicine people. And it started really happening when I, when I sobered up, it's funny. I, this December I'll be, um, six years drug free. And, uh, in just a few weeks, I will be two years alcohol free, completely sober. And so Amazing. Congratulations. thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, when I started really sobering up all of this different medicine just came flooding into my life and song was was one of those areas of medicine that I was totally unprepared for, but it, it came and, and anyway, so, you know, there's this little piece of the article in which I share a song that I was, you know, given by this beautiful Alaskan woman and, and I sing a little bit and it was just very scary to release all of that. But, you know, going back to sort of my quote unquote stereotypical, you know, eagle screeching and, and all of that in the article, I was scared to put out, put it out, but I thought, you know what, who cares? I don't care because that Eagle was real. I watched that Eagle fish that morning and many mornings that I was there, you know, I, I watched these clams at the bottom of the shell river, just existing. You know, I, there was a moment where I was on one of Winona LaDuke's um, paddle boards she had up at Shell River camp and I grabbed one and floated down river for about an hour one day. And I watched all, I just, I leaned my head over the side of it, you know, and, and I just floated down river and watching this whole universe at the bottom of the river, all the algae and the plants and the snails and the clams and the fish, the tiny little minnows, you know, and then the water. And I just, it was just one of those moments where time doesn't exist and you feel that ancestral connection to the land that is holy, that is creator, you know, it is God, whatever you want to call it. It's that moment where you're just like, I'm not separate from any of this. Yeah, I'm not separate. we're all connected. It's all connected. And I'll fight for this until the death, just like I would fight for my own body, just like I'd fight for the, the bodies and spirits of my family. I got to fight for these little clams at the bottom of this river. I got to fight for that poor eagle trying to catch a fish, you know? <laughs> so yeah, I decided to just go ahead and release it and send it out, put it out into the ethers and see what happened. And, and I've been very blessed to have received a, um, a lot of wonderful feedback and, and um, yeah, I'm very proud of how it was received. So I am the river by Amber Morningstar Byers. The smoke from the sacred fire floats through the air, blanketing the camp with the smell of sage, tobacco and cedar. I close my eyes as I lay my head against the back of my cold camp chair. I try to concentrate on the rhythm of my breath in an effort to calm my heartbeat. My muscles are tight and exhausted. My mind races with thoughts of all the emails piling up in my inbox and homework left untouched. I breathe deep, unclench my jaw and open my eyes. I am looking at a scarred earth, 
deep trenches dug by the multinational pipeline company Enbridge. I am on the front lines of the Line 3 pipeline resistance at the Red Lake Treaty Camp in Northern Minnesota. Line 3 is an oil pipeline expansion constructed by Enbridge, a corporate pipeline giant responsible for the largest inland oil spill in the United States. Enbridge proposed this pipeline in 2014 to carry almost a million barrels of tar sands oil per day from Alberta, Canada to Superior, Wisconsin, crossing under the headwaters of the Mississippi and endangering the wild rice beds of the Anishinaabe. This endangerment is a violation of Anishinaabe treaty rights as explained by the Sierra Club. In 1855, the Anishinaabe ceded 10 million acres of Minnesota's Northern Lake country to the federal government, but reserved the rights to hunt, fish, gather, and hold ceremony on the lands. Anishinaabe territory was included in a series of 19th century land treaties to make peace in return for money and goods. Over time, the amount of reserved land for native tribes dwindled as the US government looked to expand and capitalize off timber sales. Now, buried beneath this resource-laden land and its troubled history lies Enbridge Line 3, a 34-inch pipeline built in the 1960s that ships crude oil from Alberta, Canada to a terminal in Wisconsin that is adjacent to the Bay of Lake Superior. Built before the National Environment Protection Act of 1970, the line didn't require any environmental review. I have now been on the Line 3 front lines for almost a month in an attempt to assist the Anishinaabe and their allies in the fight to protect their right to clean water and a healthy land base. I came to the front lines not only to defend the treaties undermined by Enbridge, but to protect the treaties made between Indigenous people and the natural world. In the beginning of time, Indigenous peoples around the world made treaties with the earth and all her beings. We agreed to take care of the animals, plants, land, water, and elements. We agreed to live in reciprocity and respect for all things related, including ourselves. I am now on the front lines to uphold these natural agreements and responsibilities given to us by the original instruction handed down by our creator. Frontline work like the kind I am doing is extremely difficult and it is not for everyone. It is not for the dainty or faint of heart. It is not for those who cannot live off of and with the land. It is not for those who cannot take direction from indigenous leadership. It is not for those who cannot check their privileges at the camp gate and put the needs of the community first front and center. It takes a certain type of person to be able to make the sacrifices involved. As land defenders and water protectors, we leave behind our homes, jobs, families, educations, and responsibilities to do this work. To come to the front lines, I left behind my elderly mother whom I care for, my animals, my work as a full-time law student, and my job as a legal research assistant. Like many others, I dropped everything. We do this because we are tired of seeing our mothers suffer under the weight of white supremacy, patriarchy, greed, and capitalism. We do this work because we know we can and because it is hard, strengthening, and beautiful. And beautiful it is. Yesterday morning, I watched as a bald eagle circled over the river, diving to catch a fish. 
The fat walleye swimming below shimmered in the early morning light. It was first light at around 6 a.m., I would guess. I had just woken up and was feeling around in my tent for my turtle shell rattle and coffee thermos when I heard the unmistakable screech overhead. I scrambled out of my tent just in time to see the eagle dive into the water, talons extended in a glorious attempt at breakfast. It missed the fish and I empathetically shared its disappointment. I was reminded to be thankful for the nourishment I would receive that morning. Moments like this with the eagle occur daily at camp. Whether it's when the beloved camp dog Pahi snuggles up against my leg, or when a school of minnows swim up to my kayak as I gently paddle my way down river, I am constantly reminded that in this place and all places, I am not separate from nature. I am the earth and the earth is me. Camp is a reminder of the way we should all be living. We are not meant to sit in an office eight hours a day, staring at a screen, eating food that will rot our bodies and spirits. We should be out on the river and sleeping on the earth. We should be working with the land, preparing food for one another, telling stories and singing songs around a fire. White culture would have us embarrassed at this notion. It's some real quote unquote kumbaya shit, I know. But I don't care because to me, it's the only real way to live. The rivers, lakes, land, animals, plants, stars, and wind, rain, they're all very real to me. Emails don't feel real. Neither does money, nice cars and clothes, or the Western image of success. Institutional education does not feel real to me. Everything I need to learn is right outside my door. All the best teachers exist in the natural realm. Sadly, most days we neglect to attend the lessons of nature, neglecting our ancestral ways of living for a modern and quote unquote civilized way of life. I don't shame us for it because it's by no fault of our own that we have been forced into this way of life. The main goal of colonization and globalism is to create mass dependency on the systems of capitalism created by white supremacy. Colonization has purposefully diminished our connection to the Great Mother. Thankfully, some of us have not forgotten our ancestral ways and connectedness. My remembrance of these ways was furthered when a young woman from Alaska arrived at camp one day. She came bearing a song to sing during one of our daily ceremonies in which the women from camp gather by the river each morning to sing songs of gratitude to greet the day. I shook my turtle shell rattle and she gently stomped her foot to the beat and together we sang the words. I am the river, I am the sea. I am the salmon, the wild osprey. I am the wind in the aspen tree. I am you and you are me. The words of this woman's song help to remind me that our knowledge of connection and relation has not been lost completely. 
Indigenous peoples around the world are fighting to maintain it. For us, resistance camps like Line 3, Standing Rock, and Oak Flat are not mere movements for social and environmental justice. They are a way of life. We have been fighting for our land, water, and people for 500 years, and we will never stop fighting. This must now be a way of life for all people if we are to survive the atrocities happening to our earth. All people must fight. All people must reconnect. All people must remember that without reciprocity, we create imbalance. To restore balance, we must remember that we are the river and we are the sea. I am you and you are me. We are all related. This article is dedicated to all the brave land defenders and water protectors holding space on front lines around the world. May the ancestors bless and hold you. Thank you so much for sharing that and um, for allowing me to share the article here, you know. Um, and something that I want to talk a little bit about um, the I am the river article is so beautiful and so poetic and I can really feel that it is like pieces of a journal stitched together and there's a lot of beauty and a lot of grace within it and I think that that's something that often gets missed when we view like these these water protection actions through social media you know trauma porn sells and it amplifies so oftentimes we only see that part from an outside perspective, but when you're actually on the land, engaging with community who are dedicating their lives to these movements, there is so much beauty. I'm like tearing up because I've been to those places and I've seen that beauty. And that's what really moved me about this article is you touch on that while simultaneously like bringing in this like really important, like critical, like knowledge around like Edinburgh and like the toxic implications of line three pipeline going through that space. And I just wanted you to reflect a little bit on your um, feelings around, you know, the resist line three actions and how it was being on the camp and um, the urgency that you continue to take within your own life to support it. Yeah. There's a couple points there. I mean, there's so much to unpack and I could, again, talk about this for hours on end, but you mentioned that the beauty of these frontline experiences is not talked about enough and not acknowledged enough. And that's, that's true. And I think another element that is a direct product of that beauty that's also not talked about enough is the trauma of having to come home and integrate back into city life or education or your job or whatever it is that you have to do that you left to go to the front lines, having to integrate back into those spaces and pretend like everything's okay when it's not, when you have your comrades still up on the front lines and you know what they're going through, you know, to see it online, to see it on social media and, and know that you can't be there anymore because you have things to do. You have people to take care of. You have, whatever your responsibilities are, you know, and that's very, very hard. I've been home for exactly a month now after being on the front lines for a month in Minnesota. And 
I feel like I'm just after 30 days of being home just now starting to come back into my body. You know, I think my spirit was still up in Minnesota from for a long time after I, I, I physically left. But yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the community that we experience on these front lines, uh, on these front line resistance movements. And, and I don't know, I, hate, I sort of refrain from calling them movements because, and you know, I talk about this in my paper, Standing Rock and Oak Flat and Line 3, they're not just movements for Native people because we've been fighting for our land for 500 fucking years. Mm. You know, this is nothing new to us, you know. For the allies and accomplices, they're like, oh, wow, like these movements. No, no. For Native folks, this has been a way of life for a long time. We've just never stopped. We've never stopped fighting for our people and our land and our water and our culture. And so, you know, when we enter into these spaces, these frontline spaces, there is something that happens that is not allowed in the outside world, these everyday places that we have to exist in. Um, Society is where where it is, what it is. And that is the change that happens when you go to these frontlines is that you are not you anymore. You are not an individual. You are not alone in your big house with your car and your fancy shit and your clothing and all that. You are part of a community. And the needs of everyone else are just as important at yours as yours and vice versa. And you're immersed in this new way of living, which is everyone needs three meals a day. You know, are we safe? How are we going to keep security? How are we going to keep the perimeter of camp safe? You know, dealing with infiltrators, dealing with the cops, dealing with the animals in the community. Are we, do we have fresh water? Uh, you know, yeah. Or is the kitchen running properly cleaning the communal spaces, making sure that things are tidy and, and, you know, and uh, that the children are looked after, have the elders eaten? Is the fire, is the fire going? Um, you know, is everyone okay? Is everyone okay? And what is my role in this community? Am I part of the kitchen? Am I part of the medic station? Am I in leadership? Am I part of, you know, security, welcoming, uh, you know, safety? Uh, everyone has a role, you know, and everyone has jobs. And you, you know, you usually work a lot. <laughs> There's a lot to be done every day at camp, mm-hmm. you know. And so, mm-hmm. and that's the beauty of it is that you're going to sleep listening to the men drum by the fire every night. You're waking up to hear the women singing by the river, you know, and the smell of fresh sock coffee in the morning, you know, and for those of you that don't know what sock coffee is, yes, it is coffee made with socks because when <laughs> you're making coffee for dozens and dozens of people, you fill a sock, a clean one, hopefully, hopefully <laughs> you you get a clean big ass tube sock and you stuff it with coffee and you put it in a big pot and let it boil. So that's what sock coffee is for anyone that doesn't know. And yeah, you know, and, and that's what that's what camp life is, is that you're you're listening to the drumming, going to bed, you're waking up to the singing of the women, um, you're looking after everyone's children, you're, you know, worried about everyone there and, and everyone's safety and well-being and 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 health and their ceremonies and and that's the way we should be living. I we shouldn't be living all in these individual apartments and houses and condos and such. You know, we need to be together and we need to be 
taking care of each other because that's how that's when we're really taken care of you know is when we're taking care of other people and so it's it's hard it's really heartbreaking to be in that space for weeks or days or months or however long you're at the front lines and to get a, a taste of that a good taste of it you know and then have to leave and go back to your bed in your house alone yeah there were many days when i i woke up and I felt panicked, you know, because I, I was alone and I didn't have anyone to like, you know, um, I didn't have that community anymore. So it's, it's really, it's hard. The reintegration back into society, Western society after frontline experiences is really hard. And that's something that's not talked about enough. So yeah, my heart goes out to all the other frontline warriors who are dealing with that and who are um, trying to cope with the illness that is Western society. Yeah, and I love I love calling it an illness. Um, that's something that me and Chinupa talk about a lot. It's because it does um, it does take so much away from you. You know, when you're when you're having to deal with like a a society that was shaped to like disintegrate holistic living and intergenerational support. And so, yeah, I just really appreciate you naming the mental health implications that that has. And I think that more and more people are starting to recognize that that's an issue. And hopefully we create more support for mental well-being of people who are dedicating their lives to the front line. Like, it's okay that you, if you have to leave and regenerate and tag out also, you know, like even though it's lonesome, sometimes you have to go get healthy because it can be exhaustive on your um, adrenals and everything being on the front line in those ways and putting your body on the line and caring for community in that way. You know, there's just not enough people and resource to sustain that way of living because it has been stripped away through Western society. So I really appreciate you like naming that mental health aspect to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's hard. Some people never come back. Some people are not able, I know people who are still in 2016, you know, um, at Standing Rock, they never, they never really left mentally, you know, they just sort of now are hopping around from movement to movement from frontline to frontline. And that's, that's, I'm not shaming that at all. In fact, I think that's, that's much needed, but it's just hard, you know, once you're there, once you experience, experience these things, um, it's really hard to go back, you know, at least for me, it, it has been so. And what is some advice you can offer to people who maybe either, either or want to go and support the front lines or are coming back from the front lines and feeling that lonesome feeling and needing to re-ground and recenter when they enter Western civilization? Yeah. I think for folks heading to the front lines, um, just be, you know, be prepared mentally, financially, physically, spiritually, you know, just be prepared for a life-changing experience. Um, do your homework, you know, uh, of course, if you're an ally or accomplice, make sure that you are fully prepared to leave your privileges at the gate and to, uh, you know, completely cater to the needs and demands of, of uh, Native leadership, Indigenous leadership. 
And that's very hard for some folks, you know, to have to leave their egos at the door and say, okay, I'm not going to be a white man in this space. I'm going to be a good ally, a good accomplice. I'm not going to be an egotistical asshole and try and know what's best all the time or mansplain or, you know, white splain or whatever. It's, it's, um, that's definitely something to, you know, to consider before going there. And, I think for anyone coming back, I would just say, you know, really, really take care of yourself and draw boundaries with people. I didn't talk to some of my loved ones, my friends and family members for a couple of weeks after I got back because I just couldn't, you know, people were texting me saying, how was it? Well, fuck, I don't know how, how, <laughs> I don't know if I'll be able to talk about it for years to come. Like, I don't know what to tell you right now. I can't, I can't explain in a text message how it was mm. you know so I just sort of had to tell folks like I'm not going to be ready I may never be ready ready to talk about my experience you know and that's how it was a standing rock too is that I, I sort of had to just tell people like look I I'm going through it right now I need some support and some space and um, you know it's hard for folks to try and find a balance of both sometimes but they can you know you just articulate your needs to your community and and uh, Thankfully, mine was very understanding, very kind. As far as like work, you know, I mean, sometimes that's, you can't always just take time. You know, you got to jump right back into your career or your family or whatever you left before you, you know, before going up there. And that was sort of the case with me. I had to get back to work as soon as I got back. School had already started. I missed the first two weeks of class. I was two weeks behind, which in law school is like really not good, you know, and so I basically went straight from the front line back to mergers and acquisitions homework, you know, and my brain was like, what is happening? I'm not ready for this. Like it wow. was really hard. Yeah. But you know, I just grace, just giving yourself grace to say, you know what, can't do this homework right now. I got to take a bath, you know, or I have to let myself sleep this morning instead of getting up and hopping on a call, you know, and just telling people I can't do, I can't do it all. I'm sorry. And hopefully folks will understand, you know, and if they don't, fuck them. <laughs> yeah, you know, it feels like that's really like good general life advice in the time we are at right now is just like having loving boundaries with everyone, with yourself and with people who are your close community and the people you work with and the work that you choose, everything. I think that we can be more giving to ourselves and our community when we have really solid boundaries. And I think that's something we all need to work on more. So I really appreciate you saying that. It's it's so important for us to grow into as a society, I think. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think that boundaries can allow us to actually be more holistic and work together more and be more in community, you know, because it allows us to come close, you know, and to know what we need and what when we need breaks. And um, I just really appreciate you sharing all of this. And I feel like we could totally have an entire series where we go, <laughs> go down all of these little rabbit holes. But um, let's just kind of consider that we're scratching the surface on this podcast. Yeah. And um, as we wrap up, I just want to kind of like, recontextualize you as an artist all of the layers that we've walked through through law school 
um, through frontline action, through you as a writer and a storyteller and sharing this article. It's all incredible art. You are such a maker. You're such a giver of creative energy. And I just wanted to really thank you for all of, for sharing all of this with us here. And do you have any advice from, from an artist's perspective, from somebody who creates in everything you do and keeps pushing forward and believes in yourself? Mm. Anything to share for young people, maybe um, young artists who are working towards that space of self-trust, I guess. Mm. God, don't stop. That's the only thing I have to say is don't stop making art. Don't stop making art because the minute you do, you die a little bit. And that's something that I really realized over my, my span of my adult life is the periods where I was not making art were the darkest of my life. Those, those times where I was not in creation trying to make something beautiful, not for anyone else, but just for myself, you know? I don't sing for people. I sing for myself. You know, a lot of my paintings, I've never shown anyone. You know, um, I write all the time. I try to write three pages a day, which is something that was given to me by a mentor. He said three pages every single day, no matter what it is, even if it's just mumbo jumbo, get it out, put it on paper or in the computer or whatever, you know, just get your thoughts out and storytelling. You know, I don't, I have a lot of issues with the written, uh, the written story because that's not how we did things. You know, that's not what we didn't write anything down. You know, we have oral, we're oral people. You know, we, we told stories um, since time immemorial and you know they they've lasted they've lasted and so i really love storytelling you know and and just taking the time for that every day in little little spaces you know calling a friend to say hey can i tell you the story or can i tell you about this experience or moving energy that way you know sometimes i'd rather do that than write but yeah that's that's the the bottom line is my advice to anyone to all people really because the thing is, is that over my life, I've had so many folks tell me, oh, you're so lucky to be an artist. You know, you're so lucky you're talented. No, I'm not. I'm not lucky at all. I'm just doing it. Everyone is an artist. Everyone can find an art. It's just about finding your medium. And not every, it, people think art is like painting and sculpture, you know, music. No. No, cooking is an art. Gardening, working with the land is an art. Find what you what you do in this life that makes you lose track of time and and fulfills your heart. That's art. And so I just encourage everyone to find their art and never stop doing it and never stop exploring. You know, just just create, create and um and don't stop. And um, to plant some seeds of knowledge in the garden of these people's minds, <laughs> is there a few um, is there a few books or podcasts that you could recommend to either um, as resource for inspiration, but also like resource for uh, the Resist Line Three movement or other ways to understand what land back might mean, or you know, just any 
anything that you're kind of looking to right now or have in your toolkit of resources, a mm. few, a few suggestions. Yeah. God, there's so many. I think for a lot of uh, legal information pertaining to land back, pertaining to federal Indian law, uh, indigenous people's law, Rebecca Nagel is an incredible person to keep an eye on. I just worked with her this past summer on an upcoming project. So keep your eye on her because she is a wealth of knowledge and is an incredible journalist and does really wonderful work. I, I admire Rebecca very much. So um, yeah, keep an eye on her and her podcast, This Land, very educational, especially if you're an ally or accomplice and you don't know shit about Indian law or even really a lot of the, the history of this country. I mean, it's, she does give a lot of history lessons in, in her podcast. So that's a huge one. Uh, Nick Estes and the Red Nation, they do a lot of really wonderful work. Um, they have a podcast that I've heard several episodes and we're really impressed by that. Um, of course, Winona LaDuke and Honor the Earth, um, they're, you know, the creators of this uh, fight. They are the, um, you know, some of the first ones to put the call out. Uh, Honor the Earth is a wonderful organization to follow and donate to and be part of. And yeah, I think um, stopline3.org is of course, you know, that's like the, the major informational site. But, uh, you know, also being in the legal field, I highly recommend that if you have the means, please donate to the legal fund, which will retrieve water protectors from jail and uh, provide them with, uh, you know, good counsel so that they can fight their charges in, in court. There's the Water Protectors Legal Initiative uh, or Legal Collective. Um, and I think the website for uh, the, the legal assistance up in Minnesota is Plan Line 3. So planline3.org, I believe. Um, so those are some resources that you can, you know, research, look into. And then, you know, I'm not a huge proponent of social media. I actually only have a teeny tiny Twitter account that I post a lot of animal videos on. I don't really take it seriously, but I would highly recommend that anyone on social media follow the people who are on the front lines, you know, and that's mm -hmm. not hard to do. You can just go resist line three mm -hmm. uh, is a, a handle that you can look at and, you know, and, and keeping up with these, these, resistances as well it's not just like you you know make a donation and then forget about it keep up you know keep up with the um the different um indigenous acts of indigenous resistance around the country and the world you know so yeah but those are just a few a few resources and i'll if i think of any more i'll um give them to you ginger so that you can put them on the site or, or yeah that's great I'll put everything that you talked about on the show notes and if you think of anything else and um, thank you for sharing all of that you know I always like to be able to have pockets of resource for people who are just kind of waking up to how to be better humans <laughs> um, and speaking of do you have any book suggestions um, one of my favorite parts about our friendship is sh like sharing um, like mental health 
books and podcasts and publications. And so what's on your reading shelf right now as far as that goes? Or what are you listening to right now to um, protect your heart and your spirit and keep you whole in that way? Oh, man, there's so many. Yes, I love that. I love sharing uh, resources with you. Uh, there's so many. Um, I'm currently listening to The Extended Mind by Annie M. Paul. Um, that's an incredible book about the relationship between the mind and the body. Highly recommend that. Uh, the other one that is is really has really been important to me, and I know that it's it's a really hard read. I I kind of I'm gonna I'm gonna admit that I weep every time I read it. But it's called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Klok. Uh, he's a um, I, I don't know if I said that right. Actually, I'm pretty sure I didn't. Bessel van der Kolk, MD. That's right. Mm. And um, I'll put it in the show notes too. So. Yeah, it, that's a really incredible book about how the body holds on to trauma and actually can, in certain circumstances, perpetuate trauma because of the the nerve, the conditioning of the nervous system. Um, that's really been a, a life changer for me because I I really didn't understand how why or why my a lot of my traumas kept manifesting um through my body and uh the gift by edith eager is another incredible book um breath by james nestor uh that's about um the the uh, breath work how we're all breathing wrong <laughs> and our <laughs> our cranial structure is actually de-evolving um because of because of society practice, societal practices, it's insane. We, you don't realize that you're, you're breathing wrong um, all the time. Um, but I just want to mention a couple of the books here um, that have really, really helped me. We Are the Luckiest. That is a book about sobriety. And that really helped me because I didn't go to AA. I didn't do the Red Road per se. I, I really found my own medicine in my own way, which helped me become sober. So that was a really good book. It's by Laura McCowan. Happiness Becomes You by Tina, Auntie Tina Turner. Um, yes. Yeah, that's another really good one. Uh, the Book of Secrets by Deepak Chopra. That one really, man, that one shook me up and just blew my socks off. And as far as leadership goes, uh, Think Again by Adam Grant and Dare to Lead by Brene Brown have really uh, helped me in my leadership and have humbled me in in many ways oh and the last but definitely not least this is probably the most profound and important professional and it's not just professional information because it sort of bleeds into all the different areas of my life but a book called essentialism by greg greg mccallan man that book that book changed my life uh it really changed the way i do things the way i conduct myself the way I do business and um, just generally the way I live my life. So highly recommended. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And as our closing thought, um, can you just give me your soapbox moment? You know, if you could say one thing to the world and it could possibly travel into the ears of people all over the globe, what would you say? I would just say, don't be ashamed to reconnect. 
don't be ashamed to reconnect to your ancestors, even if your ancestors are Nazis, even if they came from Europe, even if they've done horrible things to people. They came from people who were connected to the land. They came from people who had stories and had traditions. They had songs, they had regalia, they had customs, they had language. And you are still connected to those ancestors and you need to find them. Stop taking from other people. Stop perpetuating the systems of violence in this world. Stop benefiting from white supremacy. And for the native people who are reconnecting, the same goes. Don't be ashamed to reconnect. Don't be ashamed to reconnect to the land, to remember where you come from, to seek out those stories and, and find your people. You have to do it, and, and this pertains to everyone, you have to do it in a respectful way. You know, you can't just go barging in and sit down at the table when you've never been there. You know, you have to find respectful, tasteful, humble ways of reconnecting to your community but it can be done and it should be done. And I think that that's one of the main problems of this world right now is that there are so many disconnected people. They don't remember where they came from. They're not in touch with the teachings of their old ones. And, and it, it breeds sadness and it breeds anger. It creates spiritual and emotional bankruptcy. And I think that if we all supported each other in our reconnections, in our journeys of reconnection, that this world would be a, a much better place. So that's what I'll say. That's my soapbox moment. It's just everyone needs to reconnect and, and find their way. Thank you so much. Thank you for being on the project, Amber, and just for your general incredible light that you bring to everything you do and your heart and your vulnerability and your grace and your ease and also your staunchness and your fierceness. Like you're mm -hmm. one of my favorite people and I just really am grateful to like share a bit of insight from you to my community. Mm, thank you, G. Heck yeah, this was a lot of fun. I, I really, I love everything that you do, all your work and, and just who you are as a person, broken boxes and, and all of it. So thank you. It's a huge honor to be a part of it. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful. We'll go on a hike soon then. <laughs> Heck yeah, I'm almost down. Put my boots on. <laughs> Ready. <laughs> This place might be more than I can hold And yet I think I'd like to try and stay here till I'm old This land holds prophecies untold They can't be bought or sold And the river winds, winds 
winds its way through time As the cliff-dwelling swallows build their homes with silt and clay And I hope you find, find, find some peace of mind When the stars call you home one day How many breaths, how many hours before the sun goes down If you believed in higher powers It's now they might be found Ancestors gather round They speak without a sound And the river winds, winds Winds its way through time As the cliff-dwelling swallows Build their homes with silt and clay And I hope you find, find Find some peace of mind When the stars call you home one day And when the time comes To lay your body down May you journey on with ease Say one last farewell We'll hold you close and let you free As the river winds The story of the land we tend Is longer than we know Blessed are all those who defend The waters as they flow That's how our love can grow Beyond when we must go And the river winds, winds Winds its way through time as a big summer storm cloud comes to fill the sky with rain And I hope you find, find, find some peace of mind When the stars call you home one day And when the time comes to lay my body down May I journey on with ease when the time comes to say one last farewell Please hold me close and let me free Just as the waters long to be And the river winds, winds, winds its way through time As the cliff-dwelling swallows build their homes with silt and clay And I hope you find Find, find some peace of mind When the stars call you home one day When the stars call me home one day Yes, we're all going